be continuing this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, if you want to turn to Matthew 16. you found your way to Matthew 16, if you'll stand with me, we're going to read verses 24 through 28 together. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Father, this morning as we look at your word, we need to hear from you. Lord, we want to follow Jesus. That's why we're here. And we need your help. And Lord, you have not given any human man as help to your church, but you've given your word to your church. And so, Lord, for each one here, myself included, we don't need to hear from me or from anyone else but you today. We need to hear from your word of what your son has said is required of us. So, Father, I pray that you would help me to speak only what is profitable and that anything that would come to mind that I would say that would not be helpful, that you would remove it from my mouth. Lord, I pray that you would help me to concentrate on what I have studied regarding this passage and make it fruitful for those who hear. And, Lord, I pray that you would Uh, Be gracious towards me uh, as a preacher of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I didn't realize uh, when I had looked at these texts, uh, I was reading one of the commentaries this week, and it said Matthew 16 was the hardest chapter uh, in the Gospel of Matthew to preach. And so I just want to thank Chris for, uh, for setting that up. He's going he's gonna to run me through the paces, I think. Uh, but this, this whole chapter is really important. Um, as we talked about last week, this, this is the transition in Jesus' ministry where he begins to publicly reveal first to his disciples and then later on to others uh, that he is the Messiah of God. We had seen him in a teaching capacity um, up until chapter 16, but after Peter confesses him as the Messiah, after we see the Father reveals to Peter who Jesus is, uh, then he is able to talk about his path. And last week we talked about how the path that Jesus has to take is suffering, which is the path that we all must take in doing that. And so where have we been so far in chapter 16? Well, in the beginning, the, you'll remember the, the scribes and the Pharisees asked for a sign from Jesus as though he had not been performing miracles 
uh, for a long time at this point. And his response was, you'll receive the sign of Jonah. And we talked about how the sign of Jonah is the resurrection of the dead. Because just, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days in the deep, then he was brought out uh, to bring a redemptive message to the people of Assyria, that if they would repent and turn to God, that they would be saved. And in the same way, Jesus was explaining to him that, that they would receive the sign of Jonah, that Jesus himself would go into the earth, into the deep for three days, and come out and proclaim uh, that it, anyone who would repent and trust in him alone for their salvation would be saved as well. Then we saw later on in chapter 16, Peter's confession of Christ, that he is uh, the Messiah, the son of the living God, and that this was a change in Jesus' ministry after this, because as we said last week, Jesus reveals his plan. His plan is that he has to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die uh, at the hands of the Jewish leaders in order for God's plan to be fulfilled. And we talked about how Peter struggled with accepting this plan of Jesus because it seems so contrary to, to what we would think of as a victorious king. So we saw progressive revelation throughout this, which we see throughout the scripture, where God reveals one thing and he begins unpacking it over time. And we see this in chapter 16. So now that we understand the plan for Jesus, Jesus is going to talk to us about his plan for us. So we had to learn about Jesus last week. Now we have to learn about our own plan. So the title of the message this morning is Two Worlds Exchanged. There's, there's two worlds that Jesus is talking to us about here in chapter 17 that even as we go in, or in 16, as we go into 17, which I'm really glad that Chris is preaching, um, is going to get even more mind-blowing and complicated and a little tough to understand. But Jesus is now revealing to them that there's these, these two worlds that are going on and that as believers in Jesus, we have to exchange this world for another world is what he's explaining to us here. Raise your hand and tell me if you've ever had a vertigo. How many people in here have ever had vertigo? A few people, okay. Um, if you're wondering if you've had it, then you haven't had it. Um, vertigo is, is you, you get an imbalance, um, and it basically makes the room start spinning, and uh, sometimes you can't even walk. You can't even get enough balance to get up. Uh, it just makes you feel completely disoriented. And uh, some people deal with this on a regular basis. For me, I've only had it one time. And I was literally just standing in my living room when the room just started kind of swirling and bending. And fortunately, I was right next to a chair, so I just kind of sat down. And when I went to bed and got up the next day, it seemed like it worked itself out. But it's pretty scary because you just feel completely out of control. Uh, you feel totally disconnected with your environment of where am I even and what's going on and it's, it's very disorienting. Some of you may have had like motion sickness or seasickness. So you go on a cruise ship or something like that, and, and just the, the movement of that is just too much for you, right? You can't keep your balance, and you can't keep other things, and, uh, and it, it becomes a very difficulty. Uh, all of us have probably had a similar experience of a falling dream. Uh, it's really common for people to have that dream where you feel like you're falling and it just keeps going. Have you ever had that dream and you're falling in your dream and you wake up and realize that you're not really falling, but you still have this, this very real sensation that something's really wrong, that you feel that sense of being out of control? That's how the disciples are feeling in this chapter. They're having kind of a spiritual vertigo because 
as Jewish believers, they grew up their whole lives thinking, we've got this thing figured out. We've got the law, we've got the temple, we've got the priesthood. We have all these things figured out, and the Messiah is just going to fit nice and neat into this little box that we've made for Messiah in our theology, and everything is going to be fine. And so we'll know who he is when he comes. He's going to do exactly what we expect him to do, and everything's going to be fine. And as they're going along with Jesus and asking this question, is he the Messiah or is he not? It's like, well, he does some of the signs of the Messiah. He fulfills a lot of the prophecies of the Messiah, but he kind of fulfills them in a different way than what we heard growing up. And it seems very confusing. And so when Peter confesses him as Messiah and realizes that he is, that starts them down this journey of, okay, I have to accept Jesus as he says that he is, and I have to accept him as Lord of what he says about everything, even if that doesn't make sense to me, even if it's completely backwards from what I've thought my whole life. If you're a believer today, you know what this experience is like because you come to the end of yourself when you come to Christ and and surrender yourself to him and say, Everything that I thought that I knew about life and about myself and about you and about everything is completely wrong, and I need you to instruct me on the right way to think about these things, which is why he has given us his word and why we have to constantly be checking our own thoughts against the scriptures of, am I thinking correctly or has God said something different? Because we all have this sense of vertigo of every time we read the scriptures, we feel like, okay, there's a little bit of this that's familiar, but sometimes it just feels really strange and uncomfortable. If you're regularly reading the Word of God and it's not making you a little uncomfortable, that's not a good sign, because part of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is that He's correcting us up against the standard of Scripture. And so the disciples here are saying, okay, we've accepted now that Jesus is this Messiah, and we've even accepted that his plan is to suffer and die. Now, we have no idea how that actually makes you a victorious king that restores God's people of Israel on the earth and creates this earthly kingdom. We don't know how that works, but we're taking your word for it because we've seen you prove that you're the Messiah by your works, and also because they've been given faith by the Holy Spirit to believe. But there's this this exchange, this vertigo that's happening, and so I want to unpack this a little bit that's happening in this text because the same thing that Jesus is saying to them is what we all must go through. And so here's the question today that we want to try to answer with this text. The question is, how can we find fulfillment in this life and receive eternal life after death? Now, the eternal life part is, is not as key culturally as it used to be because a lot of people would deny that there is an afterlife. Um, of course, we don't. But everybody is looking for fulfillment, aren't they? That's what our whole society is built on, is, is how can I have purpose? How can I have meaning? How can I have my, my needs gratified? How can I be uh, more respected? Or uh, how can I earn favor from certain people? Or how can I enjoy the pleasures of life? That's the reason why I had Chris read Ecclesiastes. The writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, I had a specific plan of I did everything that you could do to have fulfillment in life. And if you read the rest of that chapter and the rest of that book, he says, in the end, it was all vanity. It was worthless. None of us in here want to end up that way, right? We don't want to come to the end of our lives and think, my entire life was a waste. Everything that I did was a waste of time. None of us want to do that. No human being wants to do that. They don't want their life to just be worthless. So the question is, how can we find fulfillment in this life 
and receive eternal life after death. So let's look at that. There's three things that, that we have to do according to this passage in order to find that fulfillment in our lives. And I'm going to warn you, it's probably not the things that you're thinking because it wasn't what the disciples were thinking either. The first one, the first thing that we have to do if we want to find fulfillment in this life and receive eternal life after death is we have to deny our dreams. We have to deny our dreams. Now that's about the most un-American thing that a person can say because this country is built on dreams. Even now, people move here from all over the world because of the American dream. This idea that if we, if we work hard, that we can be anybody we want to be, we can become anything that we want to become, that we can have uh, unlimited success and wealth and recognition and whatever it is that we want, we can do that here in America. Look at verses 24 and 25 again. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now think about the people that he's talking to here. These are the apostles. These are his disciples. These guys have already left everything. We see earlier on that, we, that uh, Capernaum was the home of Peter's mother-in-law. Guess what that means? That means Peter was married. That means when Jesus called him as a fisherman to come and follow him, he left his own wife behind. He left his own wife in Capernaum. Now, it doesn't talk about children, but, this, but the, in that time, writings don't talk about children either. It's, it's possible that he could have had children that he left behind. And so he had already given up his family. A lot of them had, had already given up their friendships and relationships. Matthew, as a tax collector, we talked earlier in the book, would, would have been one of the most hated people in society. And so what little friends he had, he had to give all that up because it certainly wasn't popular to be following Jesus if you were, if you were going to be a respected Jewish person. These guys had already given it up. They gave up their livelihoods, their jobs. They weren't making any money from walking around following Jesus. That's, that's not how they were doing it. Now, we know, we, we know they had money because the Scripture tells us that Ju- Judas was actually in charge of the purse, which was uh, an interesting decision on Jesus' part. But of all people, he was in charge of the purse. So there was some money there. So we can assume other people probably gave, gave him money or did like a lot of people do even today. When they see somebody teaching God's Word, they try to support that person because they know that that's what they're spending their time doing. And so there was money there, but there's no career in following Jesus for the disciples. There's no promise of you're going to have money and 30 years from now you're going to have retirement and all that's gone. So they had already left all this. So then why is Jesus telling these guys of all people, you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me? Well, what else do they have to deny? It's not their friends. It's not their family. It's not their job. Although they had to do all those things in order to follow Jesus. It's their life. It's, it's, when he talks about soul here later in the passage, it's, it's your life. It's who you are as a person. So he's saying it's not even enough for you to give up your family, your job, everything else. You have to give up you as a person. You have to yield yourself. In other words, your dreams, your ambitions, the way that you identify yourself, the, the goals that you have in life, what you're hoping for, what, we're, what you're working towards. All of that you have to give up, complete and total surrender. Jesus is not 99% Lord of anyone. He's 100% Lord. He leaves no room for our uh, desires and wants. And that's not to say that we don't get things sometimes. But he's laying it out here of, it's not enough for you to even give your earthly possessions, your earthly relationships. I want everything, even your life, even your very life. 
And he's not just talking about dying for anything because people get this idea of being a martyr of, you know, you going out and, and you know, smacking a police officer and saying that you're a Christian is not being a martyr, okay? People have all these ideas in their minds of what it means to die for Christ or whatever. Remember, Peter's one of the guys listening to this, and this actually does happen to him. Peter literally takes up a cross the same way that Jesus did and dies on a cross. We know that from history. Many of the apostles did that. Many believers did that. So when he says, take up your cross and follow me, this isn't a metaphor for, I just want you to be more committed to me. It's a metaphor of, when the Romans come for you, you pick that cross up and you walk. That was part of the shame. They had the top beam of the cross they had to carry their own instrument of death on their backs and walk in public before they were nailed to it and hung up as part of the shame of you're so low, you're so humiliated that you have to carry the own weapon of your death. You're so submitted to the power of Rome that uh, you are being crushed under the weight of of the literal sentence of death that you have in this cross. And Jesus is saying, you better get up under that piece of wood and you better pick it up when the time comes. Remember, Peter was going to deny Christ. Remember, later on, he said, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. The word for deny there, when when he says you're going to deny me, is the same word. So you remember, Peter's denial of Christ was, I don't know this guy. I've never heard of the, the guy. The Bible says that he even curses of like, I don't have anything to do with Jesus. I don't know him. I don't want anything to do with him. Don't talk to me about him. I've never known him. That's, that's how far Peter denied him. And Peter's saying, if you're not willing to do that for yourself, then you can't follow me. If I'm not willing to say, I don't know Ben. I don't care about what Ben thinks. Ben's dreams don't matter. Ben's plan for his life doesn't matter. If I'm not willing to, to curse my own life and say, compared to what God wants for me, I'm nothing. I have no opinion of myself whatsoever. The only opinion that, ma- that matters is God's opinion. That's the level of denial that Jesus is requiring of his disciples here. You have no right over yourself. You have no right over your possessions. You have no right even of your own life. If I tell you to die, then you better go die and not complain about it. This is, this is the, the level of commitment that he's calling us to here, the same level of denial. And, and, and here's the thing. It's not just the action. You can do the right thing the wrong way, and it's wrong. Calvin said it this way. Uh, the, these people are not said to bear the cross, for a wild and refractory horse cannot be said to admit its rider, though it carries him. Right? So if you go to the rodeo and you see a guy jump on a bull, he's riding that bull. That bull is providing a ride to him. But it's a rebellious ride. It's not submission. And Jesus isn't saying, listen, I'm going to have my will in your life whether you like it or not because you belong to me. It's not a matter of submission of saying, well, I'm willing to accept that you're God as if he asked our opinion of that. It's the submission of saying, I'm going to be like that horse that's trained. I'm going to sit still when you're ready to get up. And when you pull the reins, I'm going to go and I'm not going to buck you off, and I'm not going to resist you or resist your will in my life or resist your plan for my life, but I'm going to do that. The perfect example of this is the garden. Remember the garden where he's praying, if there's any other way for this cup to pass for me, then, then let it be. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. This is what the Lord himself did, is he submitted himself under his Father's will and said, this isn't about me, this is about you. And he modeled that for us. How many times in our lives have we been in the garden? 
where where we have we have said to the Lord, not my will. This isn't about me. What do you want? What do you want me to do? William Barclay had had several great things to say about this passage, and one of them I told Rebecca I'm probably going to like frame this somewhere in my office. He said the Christian may have to abandon personal ambition to serve Christ. It may be that he will discover that the place where he can render the greatest service is somewhere where the reward will be small and the prestige non-existent. It, it's easy for us to, to have uh, these kind of gladiator-type ideas in our minds of, sure, I'll suffer for the Lord if I get to be like somebody that goes down in history as a great person or I did this great work. What about, what about the martyrs yesterday that nobody will ever hear about? Nobody knows them. They're in a church with like three people in a closed country somewhere, and nobody even knows their name. What about the people that in the middle of the night, the Chinese government just comes and takes them, and they just disappear, which happens all the time, by the way. They have no rights, and they just disappear, and nobody ever knows who they were. They weren't a famous pastor. They weren't a missionary. They were just a Christian. They were just a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter, and they just disappear. Is it worth it for them? To, to do that? This, this is part of the, the question uh, that is here. He doesn't just call us to the big stuff. He calls us to the stuff that nobody will ever see, that we'll never get any recognition for, that we'll never get any credit for. That's what he calls us to. So when we pursue our own path, what we lose is the adventure that God has in store. God has an adventure for each of us. Now, that sounds great, doesn't it? Now, think about an adventure story. An adventure story has a lot of components. It has some really awesome triumphal moments. It has some really hard moments. It has some scary moments where you wonder, is this person going to make it through? Are they going to get through this trial that they're in? And yet, isn't that all of our lives? We have great moments. There's lots of things we could go around the room and celebrate about today. There's lots of hardships we could go around the room and mourn about and say, this is really hard. This is really difficult. There's trials that we may be in right now that the question is, am I going to make it through this? Am I going to be able to get through on the other side? And yet, we lose all of that, the adventure of it, for our own way. Because guess what? The, the exciting things, you didn't pick those. Think about it. Think about the best moments in your life where you look back and you're like, man, that was awesome. God did something amazing in my life. He answered this prayer. He brought me through this trial. You never would have chose the trial that, that got you to that point. You wouldn't have done it by yourself. You would have chose the comfortable, easy road because that's the way that we do. So when we choose our own path, guess what? We miss the other things. You think about these people that have done great things for God, like we talked about last week. None of them did it without suffering. So we all, we all, we all want the fruit without doing the work. Like, I want to be really powerful in the kingdom of God. I just don't want to have to do anything hard. It's like, well, great. That, you know, try that at your job and see how that works. If it's, if it's not going to work, you know, at your job in high school, then it's not going to work in the kingdom of God either. We lose the adventure that God has for us when we try to pursue our own way. So here's what happens when we deny our dreams. When we deny our dreams, it demonstrates that we believe in a good God. As we talked about last week, does God really want better for you than you want for yourself? Is he good? This has always been the question, right? There's this fruit in the garden and it looks good. It's pleasing to the eye. It's good for food, and it gives you wisdom is, is the way that Eve saw it. Why would God hold this good food, food away from us? If God really loves us, if he's really good, why would he not let us have this fruit? This was the seed of doubt that was planted in their minds, and yet it's the same thing for us. 
okay, I can go my own way, and I know for a fact that God's Word tells me that I should surrender to Him and do something different. But is that really what's best for me? That looks hard. I don't really know that God is good and that he's going to bless me if I go in that way. It seems to me like there's a more sure road of blessing going this other way, which is exactly what Peter was saying to Jesus in the text last week. Jesus, there's a better way. You don't have to go to the cross and suffer. You can just announce you're the Messiah right now and build your earthly kingdom and everything will be great. And as we talked about last week, Jesus is like, no, if I don't do that, no one will ever be saved. It's, it's worthless. I, you, he would have an earthly kingdom for a few years, and then it would all be gone and worthless. And the incarnation, the virgin birth, his sinless life, all those things would be completely worthless. They wouldn't save anybody if he didn't finish the work that he was given. So when we deny our dreams, it, it demonstrates that we believe in a good God. When people look at us and say, like, why would you do that when you could do this over here? Well, because I believe that God's good and what he wants for me is good. And even if it's harder, that that's good too. And that God gets to define what good is and not me. Denying our dreams also shows a materialistic world that there's, that there's more to life. The world that we live in denies the spiritual. It denies that you have a soul. It denies that you have any purpose as a human being. You're just really, really multiplied pond scum. That's a materialistic worldview. And, and you have no purpose in life, and whatever you do in life doesn't matter. And the best that you can do is try to leave uh, some kind of legacy that, that will improve mankind, and then maybe people will remember you in a history book in 100 years or for a few hundred years or whatever, which happens to very few people. But th- this, is, this is the goal of life in a materialistic worldview is get as much as you can, enjoy it while it lasts, because when you die, it's, nothing happens, and it's not going to matter. When you deny your dreams, you're demonstrating to this materialistic world that there's more to life. When, when, when somebody offers you that job that pays more and you say, no, I don't think I want to take that, the, the materialistic world is going to be like, are, are you stupid? Like, like, why, like, why would you not take more money? Why would you not uh, have that nicer thing? Why would you not uh, pr- pursue this relationship? Uh, wh- why, why would you uh, marry that person when you could marry this other person that makes more money? These are the, these are the kind of claims and things that happen. And the, and the answer is, is because there's more to life than money. There's more to life than things. And so you're demonstrating that. It's a gospel witness of, you know what? My treasure's not here. I'm not concerned about the things that I have here. Also, when we, are, when we deny our dreams, it displays the new birth in our life. Why? Because it shows that we have this spiritual vertigo. It shows that we think differently than the world thinks. So when that coworker or that friend, family member, neighbor, whatever, you're having the conversation, why, like, why do, you guys, why do you guys get up early and do all this kind of stuff on Sunday and go to church? That's weird. Which, by the way, it is weird now. It used to be weird not to go to church. Now if you see somebody driving on Sunday morning, you're like, wow, that person's going to church. I guess they don't have anything better to do. What are you displaying? You're displaying, I don't think like you. I don't have the same priorities that you do. My life is about more than me sleeping in on Sunday or watching TV or doing whatever. So when we deny our dreams, those hopes that we have, it it is a witness to the world that we are not about what everybody else is about. So what are the kind of things that we should invest in? If we're going to deny our dreams, we got to do something with our lives. What are things that are going to last longer than our lives? I want to give you a few things that you can invest in, your time, your talent, your treasure, as they would say that's going to last longer than you. 
So if you have an investment mindset, some of you in here put away money for retirement or uh, you know, your cryptocurrency went up a lot last week or w whatever it is that you're investing in, you have this mindset of, I should probably put some of my time and money and energy into something that's gonna last longer than I am. Here's a few things. One, the church. Guess what? Unless Jesus comes back before you die, the church is gonna outlive you. By God's grace, this church will exist until Jesus returns, however long that is. But guess what? It doesn't do that without investment. So if, if you just come and you don't spend any time or money or energy to invest into the local church for that church to continue on beyond your life, guess what? It doesn't. That happens. We forget sometimes that churches actually do close. Like there are churches in this county that closed last year that will never likely open again. No pastor, no members, lock on the door, like closed in Haywood County. That has happened in the last year. Well, why did that happen? Part of the reason why that happened is, is because there was no investment to, to keep that work going. And so investing in the church is a great way to use what God's given you because it will outlast you. Your friends and your family, your relationships, hopefully by God's grace, all of my children will live longer than I will. So I want to invest in them. I want to disciple them. There's people in this church that I want to disciple because they will be here, maybe even up here, when I'm gone. It's a good investment for me to spend my time and my energy and my resources in those people. Other things that last longer than our lives are money. We should think about investing our money because guess what? What good does it do for you to have a huge savings account when you die? It doesn't, it's not doing anything. Um, what do you do when the economy collapses and all that money that you've put is nothing? And this isn't to say that we can't ever save money. The Bible tells us to be wise. But think about the parable of the talents. I don't want to be that guy that when the Lord returns, he says, you took what I had and you buried it. And you're a wicked servant. That's what Jesus said about it. So we've got to be careful that we're not burying our money, that we're not putting it somewhere that it's not doing anything for the kingdom of God. And then lastly, our work. Our work does matter. We can do things that extend beyond us. It's, it's my hope uh, that I will do things in my life and in the ministry that God's given me that will extend beyond my lifetime, that it will somehow help uh, God's people years from now. That's, that's a hope that I have. That's a dream that I have. Uh, because I can invest those things. This is part of the reason why we write down things and we record things and we put things online. Why? Because we're trying to leave a little bit that will last when we're gone. So we have to deny our dreams. The second thing, how can we find fulfillment in this life and receive eternal life after death? The second thing we have to do is we have to discern our dignity. We have to discern our dignity. So look at verses 26 through 28. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. So in other words, how will preserving my mortal life and comfort have any benefit after I die from natural causes? So you will die. Every one of us will die from natural or seeming unnatural consequences. That will happen. So to what extent does us trying to preserve this life that is guaranteed to end, how is that going to benefit us later on? This is one of the things that, that we see happen, uh, for instance, when we pray for, for healing. The Bible says we should pray for healing. There's nothing wrong with praying for healing. But you know what? It's not God's will for him to heal everybody. Why? Well, why, why, 
why would you want the old car that you got to swap out parts on every six months when you can get a brand new sports car? And a lot of times we're just trying to swap parts out to kind of keep this thing going along. And the Lord has said, I'm prepared a glorified body for you at the end that is sin-free, no sickness, no sorrow, no, no more death. You're not going to have to deal with any of that. Now, that's not to say we don't take care of our bodies. Obviously, we want to be good stewards of what God's given to us. But sometimes we put so much emphasis in, if I can just squeeze a few more days out of this one, it'll be good. And we, and we, don't, we don't realize that what's waiting for us, how many people probably laugh on the other side of glory? They, pat, they, they, they leave this world, they go into the presence of Christ, and they laugh of like, how silly was it that I was so concerned in my life about my money and my time and my, my physical appearance and how much people liked me. It's like graduating high school. I tell high school students this all the time. You're in high school, and what other people think about you is the biggest thing in your life. And the day after you graduate, when you wake up, nobody cares. Because you're out in the real world, and you're an adult, and you got to go get a job like everybody else, and you got to prove yourself like everybody else. And when you show up at Chick-fil-A and say, well, I was the valedictorian in my class, and I was the most popular person on this team, they're like, don't care, here's your uniform, go do a good job. And when you come and you say, well, I had no friends in high school, and I made really bad grades, don't care, here's your uniform, go do a good job. It's going to be the same thing in eternity. All these things that we're worried and all concerned about and clinging on to, we're going to go into eternity and be like, wow, that was a waste of time. Why, did I, why, did I, why was I so anxious about that? I mean, looking at what God's done now, looking at the goodness of God, why did I ever doubt him? That's how we're going to feel. So Jesus is assuring his disciples here that their work and their self-sacrifice will be rewarded eventually, that their work is not wasted. So this is one of the things. Is Jesus doesn't just ask us to do things for free. So it's, an, it's, it's amazing that he has given us uh, forgiveness of sins. That's great. The fact that he's given us grace on top of that to actually be in favor with God, not just sinless, but to be in favor in God's eyes is a wonderful thing. But on top of all of that, the, the, the cherry on top is, is he's saying, uh, you will be rewarded for your work, the work that you are doing for him and for his kingdom, which means you can spend hours and hours of labor in a job you can work decades at a job, and right before you get to retirement, guess what? Oh, sorry, we're having to change this department, and we don't have your position anymore, and so we're kicking you to the curb. And by the way, we saved a ton of money on paying out those retirement benefits by doing that, which has happened to people. You can be concerned about that. Guess what? Never happens in the kingdom of God. Nobody ever does work for the Lord. Nobody ever invests in his work. Nobody ever spends their time and their energy working in the kingdom of God, and they get to the end and feel disappointed or feel like they haven't been rewarded for their work or I was kind of expecting more. Nobody ever feels that way in the kingdom of God. And so we have to discern our dignity. What is our soul worth? What are we worth? Okay, well, the cross says a lot about that. And granted, the cross isn't really about us. It's about God and his glory. But look at the price that had to be paid. Look at how sinful we were that it required the death of God's Son to even bring us to himself. If God's willing to do that much, uh, he says that he's a good father. Even a wicked father gives good gifts to his children. How much more will your heavenly father give to you? And yet we act as though, I don't know if I really wanted to spend that time or that money or that energy doing things for God because I don't really know if it's going to pay off in the end. That's what, we, that's what we say a lot of times. We wouldn't say it that way because we're more spiritual than that, but 
if we're honest in our hearts, that's the way that it looks. We can't understand who Christ is if we don't truly understand who we are in comparison to him. If we think that he's accessible to us and that it's not really that big of a deal, then we don't understand him correctly. So we have to understand those things. So here's the big question for here. He asked the question, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The big question is, how are we going to spend our limited resources? Every one of us in here, you will only make a certain amount of money in your life. You will only be given a certain amount of hours to live. You will only be given a certain amount of physical ability to do things. And all of those things, the clock is running down. Tomorrow you will have one less day to do work for God than you did today. You will have one less dollar. Your health will decline between today and tomorrow. All of those things will happen until you die. They are limited resources. How are you going to invest that? How are you going to spend those limited resources? Because when you get to the end of your life, what you don't want to say is, is I spent it all on preserving this life that ended anyways. You want to say, Lord, here's, here's the treasure that I've, I've laid up in heaven for you. Here, here's the works that I've done for you. Here's the things that I've done for you. Think about Joseph. Joseph was a steward uh, who had a good life. So what I'm not saying is a call to asceticism. A lot of times people get this call of, well, this means I need to be a monk and I just need to live on ramen noodles all day and wear like, like the same white t-shirt and that's me honoring God with my life and my money. That's not what it's saying. Joseph had a great life. He, when he was in Potiphar's house, he was second, second to Potiphar. Then he's second to Pharaoh. I mean, that guy had the houses and the money and the respect and everything else that you could want in life, but that wasn't his priority. So this isn't to say that we can't enjoy the things that are have, because you might hear this and you might think guilty of like, oh, I'm really, I bought that thing the other day and I probably shouldn't have doing, done that. God's not saying you can't ever buy something for yourself. He's not saying you can't enjoy his good gifts. It, it robs him of his glory when we don't enjoy the good things that he gives us. But the question is, is, are we using those things in such a way that they still do glorify him? So there's scales of time and talent and treasure that are being weighed. And when you think about your own life, what do those scales say? On one side of those scales is you. This is about me. This is how, the things I do for me. The other is the Lord. When you look at the scales of your time, how much of your time is spent on you and your dreams and what you want, and how much of it is spent on the kingdom of God? When you look at your bank account, how much of that is spent on the, the pleasures of this life and the thing that, things that I want, and how much of that is spent on the work of Christ? When you look at your, uh, your talents and your abilities, how much of that is I'm doing this in my job or with whatever to build up my own kingdom and build up myself versus I'm using this in the kingdom of God to do things uh, that I can do through the power of the Holy Spirit. With great risk comes great reward. I want to give you a quick example. There's a man named Polycarp. He's uh, one of the most famous martyrs, Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna. Um, really cool guy if you go look him up. But I want to read this quote from his martyrdom because he had a very remarkable martyrdom in Rome there. So the proconsul uh, of, Ro uh, of the Roman uh, Empire here asked him whether he was Polycarp. And on hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the atheist. Which, the reason why he would say this is because they called Christians atheists. Um, because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium, and gesturing towards them, he said, Down with the atheist. Swear, urged the proconsul, Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. This is what he said. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. 
How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp cried. I, I think it is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. That was his response. He, he was willing to risk everything. He could have had his life back. He could have had his family back. They would have turned him free. And yet he said, no, animals, fire, whatever it is. Not only am I willing to accept those things, but I'm going to preach the gospel to you because if you think your fire is bad, wait till you see God's fire. That's the response that he has to this official. The, la- the last thing that we have here, how can we find fulfillment in this life and receive eternal life after death? We have to delight in our destiny. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We don't have time to unpack all that. I know if you're reading that, you're like, oh, I got a lot of questions, okay? A couple things we need to remember here about what Jesus is saying. First, the audience is the apostles. So when he says some of you, he's talking to the apostles. He's saying some of you apostles are not going to taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What kingdom is he talking about? Well, remember earlier in the chapter, they would have thought it was an earthly kingdom. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven composed of? It's composed of those who have been resurrected from the dead. That is the kingdom. So when Jesus appears, remember the Bible says that he rose from the dead in a glorified body, that his, his body was glorified. When they saw him in his glorified, resurrected body, they knew that the king had come at that point. And what is he king of? He's king over death. He's king over hell. He's king over the grave. He's king over sin. He's king over Satan. He's king over the Roman Empire because they did the best they could and failed. He's king of the Jews because they did the best they could and failed. Who else does he have to exercise dominion over? They literally killed him in in the the most certain, painful way possible, and he walks out of the grave. What are you going to do to somebody like that? Nothing. You're going to worship him. That's the response. And so he's telling them, you're not going to taste death. You're going to see me coming in my kingdom. You've been waiting. You've been waiting to see me come in my kingdom. It's not going to look like what you think, but when you see it, you'll know. Barclay says, it is the simple lesson of history that it has always been the adventurous souls bidding farewell to security and safety who wrote their names on history and greatly helped the world of men. I want to live for something better than what I am. I want to contribute something to the world of men that matters. I want to do something that makes a difference in another person's life. And I know you do too, because that's the way that God's wired us. How do we do that? We have to follow the path that Jesus did. We have to take that path of suffering. We have to surrender to whatever it is that he's brought into our lives and not kick against it, but submit ourselves to it. What greater kingdom are you going to build than Christ has built? What are you going to do with your money and your energy and your health and your time and your resources and your influence and all the things that you have, what kind of kingdom could you possibly build compared to God's kingdom that would even compare? Nothing. So in conclusion, what dreams are you holding on to today? When you think about your future, what are you holding on to? I had a very specific idea in my mind multiple times of things that I wanted to do in life. This is what I'm going to go do. And God said no. Maybe he's telling you no today. 
Maybe you have something in your mind, and the Lord is saying, that's not my plan for you. That's, that's your dream. I'm taking you down this road, and it might be harder, but it's way more glorious than what you could have expected. Are you willing to deny those dreams today? Are you, are you willing to surrender to him as the Lord of your life and say, not my will, but yours be done? Whatever it is, with my job, with my family, with my money, with the influence that I have with people, whatever it is, it's not about me. Ask yourself this today. Are you selling your eternal soul for a few years of happiness? You might be in here today and you're not, you're not a Christian. And one of the ways that you can tell you're not a Christian is because you don't think like Christians do. Because you think like the disciples did before the Father revealed to them who the Messiah was. Of, I've got a specific plan in my life. This sounds really good. That's the direction I'm going in. And so you spend everything to get a few years of happiness on this earth when the Bible says that our whole life is like a vapor. It's like a mist. It's like a little flower that burns up in the sun and it's gone. Our whole life, all these things that we work and we get anxious about, Scripture says it's like a vapor. Are you, are you putting everything that you have, all of your hope and your resources, into a, a flower that's going to come up today and burn up in the sun and be gone tomorrow? Are you really trading your eternal soul for that this morning? And then lastly, if you are in Christ, are you going to delight at Christ appearing? Scripture says there's going to be some people who are going to shrink back when Jesus returns because they're going to be ashamed of what they did with their lives. Don't be that person. Make the decision today to accept God's plan for your life. Make the decision today to, to submit to him and to delight in his appearing so that when he comes, you have a smile on your face of, yes, I did something for you. I want to show you my love by my works. Look at, look at these things that I have done. I am I'm, I'm happy. I'm proud of the things that I've been able to do for your kingdom. Paul said he was running a race to win a prize. Are you, do you have the prize in mind this morning? Or is the prize this close to your face? The prize is, what am I eating for lunch? That's going to be really tasty and good. Let's pray together. O oh, living God, that we see the worst of our hearts as well as the best of them, that we can sorrow for those sins that carry us from you, that it is your deep and dear mercy to threaten punishment so that we may return, pray, and live. Our sin is to look on our faults and be discouraged or to look on our good and be puffed up. We fall short of your glory every day by spending hours unprofitably, by thinking that the things we do are good when they are not done to your end nor spring from the rules of your word. Our sin is to fear what will never be. We forget to submit to your will and fail to be quiet there. But Scripture teaches us that your active will reveals a steadfast purpose on our behalf, and this quiet, quietens our souls and makes us love you. Keep us always in the understanding that saints mourn more for sin than other men. For when they see how great is your wrath against sin and how Christ's death alone pacifies that wrath that makes them mourn the more. Help us to see that although we are in the wilderness, it is not all briars and barrenness. We have bread from heaven, streams from the rock, light by day, fire by night, your dwelling place and your mercy seat. We are sometimes discouraged by the way, but through winding and trying it is safe and short. Death dismays us, but our great high priest stands in its waters 
and will open for us a passage, and beyond is a better country. While we live, let our lives be exemplary. When we die, may our end be peace. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, I would invite you to consider these things, to, to deny your dreams, to discern your, your dignity, to delight in your destiny, to think about where you stand with Christ this morning. If you've realized from hearing this that you are not in Christ, then this table is not for you right now. It's our hope that you would, you would come and speak with us and that you would trust in Christ and that in doing that, you, this table would be open to you. If you're here this morning and you are a baptized believer in Jesus, um, you're welcome to come. You do not have to be a member of this church. This is for all of God's saints. We would uh, urge you, as Paul does uh, in 1 Corinthians, that if there is something between you and someone else that needs to be dealt with, that you resolve that before you come. If there's something between you and the Lord that needs to be dealt with, if you need to confess something to him this morning, then you need to do that before you come. Paul warns us that if we do not do that, we will eat and drink judgment on ourselves. And as your pastors, that's not what we want for anybody. We want you to receive blessing from God and not condemnation. And so in just a moment, we'll have the elements up front here. And uh, as the music begins to play, you're welcome to get up and come and receive those elements and take them back to your seat, and then we will take those together. And uh, we are available for prayer during that time if you would like to pray with us and after. Chris and I are always the last ones uh, to leave here on Sundays. And even though it's Mother's Day, if the Lord's dealing with you about something, then that's more important. And uh, we want to be here for you to support you in that. And so um, if you'll stand with me, when we get the elements out on the table here, you're free to come.
when they were gathered there uh, at the Last Supper, Jesus took bread and he, he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he took the cup saying, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. The scripture says that when they finished, that they sang a hymn together. So Pastor Chris is going to lead us in Be Thou My Vision, which is uh, hymn number 60 in your hymnal there. Hymn number 60, Be Thou My Vision. would be seated for just a moment. I just wanted to uh, make a couple announcements. Uh, Don't forget uh, growth groups this week. That'll be on Tuesday night uh, at the Kerfman household and on Wednesday night uh, here at the church. Those will be six o'clock on each night. If you're not involved in one of those, uh, we do invite you to come out and be a part of that. Also, 